We're prayerful that what you experienced this morning is more than just um, some wholehearted, warm entertainment by your own child or grandchild or friend, family member. Uh, we're prayerful that something extra special happens in that in some way, shape, or form, Jesus becomes brighter, um, He becomes more vivid, He becomes more uh, winsome, and that somehow today, that before you leave here, that your heart has a growing affection for who Jesus is. That's what, that's what we're praying, and that's what we're hoping for. And um, so, I, maybe I should put it this way, that's our agenda. Our agenda is not that you'd come back to our church, but that you would somehow, when you leave here, circle back around to Jesus and take a, take a close inspection of who He is and what He's done. And uh, I get the thrill of talking about Jesus every Sunday, and our kids' workers get the thrill of talking about Jesus every Sunday as well. And kids, and uh, we're just grateful to be together, and we're, we're happy to have you. And um, let's, we're going to, I picked up this phrase. I wanted to mention it to you. I picked up this phrase that my friend told me about. He said, Dan, when you are your age and my age, you get to say this phrase. And I've mentioned it, I think, to you before, but I wanted to intro this, this idea before I tell you possibly something controversial about myself. Uh, and it's this phrase, now that I'm in my 50s. And then you can follow that with anything, and it's just, you get a pass. <laughs> and so I've started to use it, and I've found it very helpful. You know, now that in my 50s, I didn't realize somebody was standing there, that's why I cut him in line, right? Now that in my 50s, I didn't hear that, that's why I talked right over that person, right? You just, it's limitless uses for excuses. Um, one of the things that I've discovered about myself now that I'm in my 50s is that I prefer, this took quite a, this quite, quite a bit of time coming, and I'm not sure if this is controversial, but I've come to discover that I prefer Christmas Eve over Christmas Day. Is that controversial? No? Well, the reason is because, obviously, it's because of Hallmark movies. I'm kidding. I'm only kidding. Um, I think that the reason is because there's a level of really, really heavy, thick anticipation. And I think the anticipation of Christmas has become more appealing to me and more heartwarming to me than Christmas Day. The air leading up to Christmas is so thick with excitement and anticipation. Um, I'm hoping it is for you too. And I've noticed that there is a blessed kind of in-between where you know Christmas is coming, but it's not yet here. And there's this expectation and anticipation. And um, in some sense, it's a, it's a sense of Jesus' arrival already but not quite yet. And I have found that to be increasingly appealing in my own heart as Christmas Day comes. And then Christmas Day comes, and, 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 and maybe this is similar for you, but Christmas Day is over in a blink. Unless you have family over, then it's like forever. I'm kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Oh, my God. How long are these people going to stay? Christmas Day... I mean, think of how fast those gifts are, poof, right? The paper and the trash and the leftovers and dishes and so on. So to me, that long Christmas season that we're in right now is, is 
fills my heart more than that Christmas day. And then uh, sometimes on Christmas day, I actually go so far as to say, this is it. It's like preparing for a meal. You guys do the meal prep like from scratch, right? All that time and effort. And then you ever get done eating and you're like, that took 10 minutes. I got to slow down. I got to space it out. I got to do something because it was so, and that's kind of how I've been feeling about Christmas. And there's something about that anticipation where we get a full season to reflect on what Jesus' purpose was in coming. What was his purpose all along? We get a full season to reflect on that. And one of the ways that we reflect on that is we consider together, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we consider the gifts that we've received from God that are his gifts of grace. And today we're going to talk about one of those gifts that we receive that comes straight from God to us through Jesus. And it helps us answer the question about Jesus. Why did he come to earth to preach and teach and heal and serve and ultimately to rescue? Why did he come to die and then to rise again from the dead? Did he do that to make us more religious? Did he do that to make us more moral? Did he do all that to make us nicer and kinder and more polite people? Did Jesus do all that in order to make us happier? Was his hope that by doing all that, that there would be people called Christians that follow Jesus and everybody's like, well, these people, they're just happier than everybody else. So the reason, one of the reasons, this is so fun to tell you, one of the reasons that Jesus came and did all that was so that, and this is, might be a new angle for some of you, so that his joy can be your joy. That's one of the reasons that Jesus came is to bring this gift of lasting joy that belonged to him, but he wanted you and I to know it too. Lasting joy. This is why the angel declares to those shepherds that are so familiar in our kids' stories and all of our uh, leading up to the birth of, uh, of Jesus and the announcement of Jesus, we remember that the angel declares to these shepherds, and he says something upon the birth of Jesus. The angel reassures the shepherds, and he says, Don't be afraid. I bring you good, new, good news that will bring great joy to all people. Christmas joy sustains us while we wait for Jesus with anticipation. Do you know, this is a little bit far out there for some of you who aren't kind of like deeply rooted in the Christian faith, but do you know that Christians believe that there will be a day when Jesus returns? Now, if you're a, if you're a Christian for any length of time, and this doesn't give you pause, this idea that Jesus is going to return... Uh, if you've gotten familiar with it, all you need to do to kind of get the shock of this idea is start to tell someone who doesn't know Jesus, a coworker, classmate, friend, family member, just start saying, well, you know, Jesus is going to come back like in person from the dead and then after ascending to heaven, right? And then hear yourself go, whoa, whoa what am I saying? This is like a shocker. But Christians believe that Jesus will return and that there's something that helps us wait, Something that is a gift that God's given us that helps us wait. And it's the joy that sustains us while we wait for Jesus with anticipation. He's coming. He kind of has already broken into our lives and into the world through expanding and, and, and growing his own kingdom. But he's not yet fully returned and redeemed. 
and renewed, right? So we wait. How do we wait? We wait with this lasting joy that comes from Him. And actually, every Christmas, we remind ourselves when we sing. You recognize this song line? Repeat the sounding joy. And so here's a songwriter with this lyric that we sing every year where we say, don't forget about the joy. Don't forget that it was announced by the angels that this joy is about to come. Good news of great joy. Good news, great joy. So, um, listen, here's what Jesus said. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with joy. Jesus tells his disciples that they can be filled with his joy, and it's an overflowing joy. I love this, right? Your joy will overflow. Your joy is going to be so fulfilling that it's going to overflow out of you, and eventually your heart is going to tell your face, I'm full of joy, and then your face is going to be like, oh yeah, my heart's full of joy. And something happens in our lives when we remember that by knowing Jesus, when he brings his joy, it overflows from us. So, there is a gift for you that has been brought by the creator of the universe through his own son, Jesus, and here's the gift. There is a gift for you from Jesus. His overflowing joy is available to you. It's overflowing joy. And this is a different kind of happiness. So there's two questions that we'll answer today. What is this joy? What is that overflowing joy? And the second question we'll answer is, How do you get it? Where does it come from? How do I sign up for that? What do I have to do? Those are a lot of questions. I only mean the one question. Where do we get it? How does it happen? Now, did the angel appear and announce to the shepherds? Did the angel appear, I bring you good news that will put you in a good mood? This was not a good mood announcement. This was a great joy announcement. I am so relieved that what Jesus promises us isn't that we will experience an occasional good mood, especially if it's the Christmas season. That it's so much more. It's so much more important. Joy is not a good mood. And there is certainly nothing wrong with being in a good mood. How many of you would say that generally along the Christmas holiday, you find yourself in a pretty good mood? Anybody? Five of you? Okay, okay. It's all right. It's all right. I understand why. Um, How many of you, this is just on a side note for my own fun, how many of you feel like you're in a better mood if Christmas is a white Christmas? Yeah, really? That's probably true because the people who don't feel that way, they're gone. They left for Florida. They're already out of here. And some of you, I know, are, I got your eye, it's a little side eye to Florida. I know. How it works. Um, in Tulsa, during Christmas season when I was in college, we, we, we recognized that when Christmas came and went, it was brown. A brown Christmas. And I used to think to myself, this, you can't actually have a Christmas if it's brown. It can only be white. In the Bible, there's a word for joy. There's all different kinds of words that explain in our own modern languages. We know words like happy, Cheerful, joyful, right? If you're uh, really on the cutting edge of culture, you might say you're amped, stoked, fired up. 
You might say, um, you're feeling pumped, jazzed. Anybody say jazzed anymore? Did anybody ever say jazz? I don't think so. Probably not. Hyped up, right? Feeling good. Ancient Hebrew has words for happy and joy, happiness and joy. The New Testament Greek has words for joy and happiness. All these words basically refer to the same thing. It's a feeling of joy and happiness. I like to think of happiness as kind of surface-level response to circumstances. I like to think of joy as an abiding um, satisfaction and delight in who God is. Abiding, regardless of what's happening on the surface. But the sources of biblical, the sources of joy... Um, and in the biblical storyline of joy, we get the answer to the question, is joy a good mood? The sources of joy, starting on page one of the Bible, the sources of joy go like this. God created everything, and, and what did he say about, some of you know this, what did he say about everything he created? It was good, really good. And that human beings here in the Bible, that you'll see in the story of God from the beginning, from page one, that human beings find joy in all the beautiful, good things of life. And the Bible says things like you'll find joy in the growing flocks or you'll find joy in abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says that the good, a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. There's joy at a wedding. We find joy in our children most of the time. A, he, a Hebrew proverb compares joy that perfume brings to your nose to the joy that a friend brings to your heart. So this kind of joy, this kind of sensation is a biblical sensation. There are words for it, there are descriptions of it, and there are sources of that joy. But we generally, human beings, have a joy problem in that um, in human history, we are largely, as a humanity, as a human race, we are largely joyless. Bad things happen. Um, we certainly are aware um, of all the things that steal our joy. My Cowboys lose in the first game of playoffs every year, steals my joy. The biblical story shows us that we live in a world that's been corrupted and damaged by our own selfishness, our own um, pride. The Bible calls that selfishness and sin, and it's marked by humanity, it's marked by suffering, death, and loss. And this is where the biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. Jesus' joy is better than natural human joy. It's not a, just a good feeling that Jesus gets from the good fortune of his life. Do you know that Jesus had joy even though the Bible says he had nowhere to, to lay his own head? He's homeless. Um, he was um, born in modest um, very, very uh, low-class circumstances, but he still had this abiding joy. And here's what we learn about Jesus' joy. His joy is an attitude to adopt. For your wilderness, 
and for your waiting. Humans live in what can be described as a wilderness, wilderness, right? And we're loaded with waiting for something to improve, something to get better, even so far as to wait for the return of Jesus. So this joy from Jesus is not only by favorable circumstances. It's not because... um, that it's things are going to go our way. Instead, what we learn, it's because of hope in God's love for us and with us and also hope in God's promises that they will be fulfilled for us. And this fits the biblical storyline. When you think about the Israelites who were suffering in slavery in the land of Egypt under the harsh, evil rule and hand of Pharaoh, God announces and then goes on to execute the raising up of Moses, who he's going to use to deliver the Israelites from their slavery, and he's going to lead them into into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was they rejoiced. They sang for joy over what God announced that he was going to do and what he was preparing to do in bringing their deliverance. Now, that's also true that once they finally left Egypt, they were facing the triple threat. What does that mean? It means that when they left England, they found themselves wandering in a desert graveyard. It also means that, their defense, that they were defenseless and vulnerable. It also meant that their promised land was decades away from arriving. So here the Israelites are singing for joy because there's a deliverer and the deliverer leads them into their own wilderness where they are defenseless, where they are really way off schedule. It's going to be decades before they arrive in the land that God promised them and they are essentially living in a graveyard, a desert graveyard. And you know what they did? They rejoiced anyway, some of the time. They rejoiced anyway. Later, biblical poets look back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused His people to leave with joy and that he, His chosen ones left with shouts of joy. A biblical poet looks back and says, our people were rejoicing that God's hand was at work even though the circumstances were the triple trouble. They still were stirred up by God to rejoice. And God's joy is something that... When we're facing triple trouble, we sing anyway. And this is so helpful. When you think about gathering together on Sunday morning to sing, there is an attitude that comes with singing on Sunday morning. Because if I did a poll, I'm not going to do this because I think it would be very depressing to see the results of this. If we considered when we arrive together and we gather as a church family and it's time to sing, it's quite likely that most of us don't really feel like singing. Some of you love to sing. Some of you probably singing before you get here. You sing after you leave. But there's a lot of people. And if you're juggling kids and you're juggling traffic and you're juggling stressors from the outside, when you arrive on Sunday morning, it's quite likely that the last thing you feel like doing is acting like you're singing a joyful song. Which is understandable, which is normal, which is probably likely for a lot of folks. Our Sunday singing isn't a response to the good feelings that we've generated while we're driving a minivan full of snotty-nosed sick toddlers. 
and kids. It's not a response to the feeling we get because the vocalist is so perfect and the band is so spot on and you're so excited that there's nowhere else that you would want to be. Instead, it's an attitude of joy. Our singing, listen, our singing is an attitude of joy that we choose, that we decide that we're going to have. Um, And this attitude asks this question, is Jesus my greatest treasure? Maybe I don't feel like it right now because of what my mind and heart is dwelling on, but I'm asking myself this question. So when it's time to sing, here's what we want to ask together. Is Jesus my greatest joy and treasure? And we ask ourselves questions like, can my God be trusted? And we ask ourselves, am I where God wants me to be regularly gathered together with other believers? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to sing and sing and sing, not because I feel like it, because I'm choosing the attitude of joy. Here's what I'm saying. Despite what's happening in my wilderness, despite the fact that Jesus is still not back with, and causing an eruption in excitement and joy, I am choosing with an attitude of singing. This attitude isn't asking, should the band be wearing that hat right now? Should they? This attitude doesn't ask questions like, do I feel like being here? Am I going to be able to get dinner together soon enough for the people that we've invited over? Do I feel happy enough to start singing? This is an attitude that says, God is worthy of all rejoicing no matter what kind of wilderness I'm facing and no matter how much waiting I have to do. Right? It's a, so, that's a, so a lot of us, um, I've, heard it put this way, I've heard it put this way, what that means is when it's time to sing, we change gears. And sometimes, have you noticed this? Sometimes how you feel follows your obedience. Have you noticed that? I mean, this happens to us for a lot of us every, every time we, um, I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but um, sometimes people I know don't feel like getting up and going to class, don't feel like going to practice, don't feel like going to work. Once they get there, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I didn't skip work again. Glad I went back to the gym, even though... Um, I didn't want to. So the Israelites' joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment for Israel. It's a way of saying something very specific. Check this out. It's a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their present struggles, but by their past deliverance, right? The the goodness of God to deliver them and protect them, and also by their future destiny, and that was enough to rejoice. That was enough to sing. And that was enough for God's people. And it was determined by, it wasn't determined by their present struggle. So I hope that encourages you today. Rejoicing that the joy of God is lasting enough to endure right through that trouble, even if it's triple trouble. And we know that early Christian communities were, do you remember Paul? I mean, early Christian communities were very well known for being persecuted, like real persecution. And one of them was Paul. And you remember, some of you remember that Paul found himself in prison. And he was sitting and waiting, waiting for justice, waiting for God to do something to, to, uh, miraculous, maybe waiting for some uh, encouragement and help to come from another one of the local church leaders. And he's waiting in a wretched Roman prison. And he's waiting for God to do something. And he could say, 
that he chose joy, and he said this, even if I get executed, I, I am choosing the attitude of joy. And he called this the joy of the Lord. Do you remember the song, the joy of the Lord is my what? Good for you, children's churchers. Good for you, VBSers. Paul believed that his lasting joy was a gift of God's Spirit. Paul believed that this lasting joy is a sign that Jesus' presence is with you by his Holy Spirit. Paul, his, he believed that this lasting joy was an inspiring hope while he was enduring hardship. Here's the key. When you believe that Jesus' love for you, when you believe that Jesus' love for you has overcome your final death and separation from God, when you believe that His love has helped you, has caused you to overcome that, joy becomes reasonable and natural in the face of triple trouble, in the face of wilderness graveyards. You can face your hardships with sorrow, right? Because we're not in denial of sorrow, but also with joy. And we see this portrayed. Um, here's a fun poll. How many of you really, really do like Christmas, classic Christmas movies? Where are you? Christmas movie folks. Now, how many of you live with somebody who likes it, not your thing? Anybody? No one's thought, for a month, I'm going to live somewhere else. Just a month, and I'll be back. I'll be back. Do any of you, does it bother any of you that you already know what's going to happen? That doesn't bother you? No? Really? It's not like, yeah, okay. Well, one of the, one of the ones that I've come to really appreciate is um, portrays this kind of joy, this life-changing joy, um, and it's portrayed in this Christmas um, movie classic. There's um, up here, Tiny Tim, this is the Cratchit family. Right? What a name, right? Talk about joyless. <laughs> yeah, we're miserable. Why? Because our name is Cratchit, to be honest. So, um, if you, here's a spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie yet. If you haven't, it's probably on purpose that you haven't seen this movie yet. But Ebenezer Scrooge has a heart change, massive change of heart. But it's fascinating because his heart doesn't really change because of his own fear of his loneliness. And his heart doesn't change because of his poor reputation, even though it was shown to him how poor his reputation was and also that he's going to end up alone. Instead, what really scared... Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge was basically scared straight, right? It was the very first version of scaring someone straight. And how was he basically... Scared straight. It's, it's an interesting, it, it turns out to be a shocking encounter with an unconquerable joy of this little guy here. What's his name? Tiny Tim. You know why they call him Tiny Tim? Because he's tiny. I mean, it's not hard, everybody. It's not hard. I just learned that this season, this season. So he has this encounter, and here's the encounter. He's watching in as a boy who has some severe challenges in his life, who should be cursing God and everybody else, especially cursing Scrooge for the way that he is treating his family. But what does he say? He says, God bless us. And then he goes on to say, no, not just us, everyone, including that Scrooge. And somehow this in 
indomitable, this unconquerable joy that's residing in the heart of Tiny Tim comes alive and it melts the heart of Ebenezer Scrooge. And it melts it so much. And what Tiny Tim and the Cratchit family exhibit in their dinner scene is the kind of joy that must come from the deepest well inside of a person. This isn't a joy you pretend to have. This is a joy that comes from the deepest well. To have nothing, to be threatened with one's life, and yet to rejoice, that cannot come from natural means. It must come supernaturally from something that dwells on the inside that we believe that comes from a lasting joy that comes from Jesus. Christian joy is very different from the trite advice to just, hey, listen, turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is so much deeper. With this joy, you can face whatever Christmas Day heartache, whatever Christmas Day heartache is bringing you, or whatever something, uh, whatever it is that you're missing. Because Jesus is good forever, and Jesus is good always. Jesus is enough for our lasting joy, and it's found in Him alone. And that's what biblical joy is all about. So how do we experience joy in Jesus? Really quick, how do we experience joy in Jesus? How does Jesus' joy become our joy? Well, let's ask Jesus Himself. He says, I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Well, Filled with my joy? Okay, I'll take it. Thank you. And then the, the next really obvious question is, so what are these things that Jesus has told them for this joy? What are these things that, have, that He's told us that cause them, the disciples, to be filled with His own joy? So Jesus says something very profound, and it's... Uh, um, let, me, let me just... It's going to be a lot of repeating what Jesus said in some kind of circular whatever, but I'm going to just summarize it real quick. Okay, so just hold on and look with your own eyes. I want you to see what Jesus says. He says, just above, I've told you these things, so now you're going to have my joy. You're going to be filled. Just before that, here's what he says. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. It's this um, abide in the vine picture. Remain in my love. Your roots be in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. So Jesus is saying, just as I obey my Father's commandments. And now Jesus was a devoted Jew. He, um, in fact, um, followed and submitted to the teachings of the Old Testament. Jesus himself was submitted to and followed the laws of God. He always sought to do the Father's will. One of my favorite passages in Scripture where Jesus is trying to tell his disciples what's, um, about what's happening to him in terms of he's headed to the cross. And he says, look, you've got to understand something. I don't, I'm being nourished. My food, what's nourishing my soul is to do the will of my Father. In other words, I'm not just... Um, I'm not just kind of grin and bearing it. I feel nourished by being in my Father's will, by doing and submitting to what He's asked me to do. And we see this most clearly in Jesus' decision to willingly sacrifice Himself on the cross. The Scripture says, obedience, Jesus demonstrated obedience even unto death. He followed the will of God all the way to the end, all the way to death in order to save humanity from their selfish separation from God. So Jesus insists that His own obedience to the Father 
is the grounds for his joy. So Jesus is saying, I'm obedient to the Father. I'm demonstrating my love and devotion to my Father. And in that, I'm finding joy. And now I want to share that joy with you. How do you find that joy? You are obedient to me. In the same way I'm obediently loving my Father, you you obediently love me. He promises that those who obey him will share the same joy. And that his very purpose in laying his life down was for that their joy, their own joy, the disciples' joy may be complete. So what does your obedience mean? It truly means how completely you love Jesus, right? Um, this is the equivalent of somebody not just saying something, but somebody demonstrating that it's real. Check this out. This is 1 John, a little bit later in the New Testament. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. They're showing their complete love to Jesus by their obedience. That's how we know who are living in Him. That's how we know who are remaining in the love of Jesus by the demonstration of that comes through obedience. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Jesus is saying, if you're living in me, then you must lovingly obey me. It's willful obedience, cheerful obedience. The willingness to do and be and, and, and live the exact same way I did. I love and obey the Father, and the Father loves me. You love and obey me, and you remain in my love. We live in Him. We are living our lives as Jesus did. How do we do that? Well, simply put, His joy flows to us by remaining in His love through obedience. That's simply how it works, that our joy is very directly connected, this lasting joy, to the level of obedience in our lives to live like Jesus lived. So Jesus' joy, His lasting joy, isn't generating a good feeling. In fact, the idea is that this ongoing joyful relationship between Jesus and His disciples is characterized by their willing obedience on their part. So, So how can I better understand Jesus' joy? Uh, I hope some of you like equations. This is something a pastor should never do, is to put a biblical concept in an equation, but let's have some fun with it. Promise me you won't hold me to this, because equations are always rife with issues, but here's a simple way to look at it. Love is expressed in obedience, and the result of that will be joy. So a lot of us live our lives here, where's the joy, where's the joy, where's the joy? And we should start backing up a little bit further and say, where's the love? Where's the affection? And my demonstration of that affection is not just to say it more often or to sing it more loudly, but the demonstration of that is to live, it, live in obedience. Now, what this means is, and this is why I wanted to do a little equation, because I think it's fair to say this. I think it's fair to this, say to this that the absence of joy is the presence of disobedience. I'm going to let you think about that for about two seconds. Let me say that again. It's quite possible when you think about your life, when we think about our lives, and there's an absence of joy, it's quite possible that the absence of joy is the presence of disobedience. Not necessarily willful disobedience, not defiant disobedience, not always fist in the air at God disobedience. It also could very well mean, if you go back even further, it could be, a, um, uh, in fact, a lack of affection for Jesus that is really at the root of our absence of joy. 
My disobedience means I'm doing things my way, not God's way. My disobedience means uh, oftentimes leads to my own hardships. It leads to my own hurts and leads to my own unhappiness. Have you ever spent any time listening to, des- to someone describe to you how miserable they are, and while they're talking, you're thinking, of course you're miserable. Just string some of the consequences of your decisions together, and you are going to be exactly as miserable as you say you are, right? This didn't happen to you. You generated this with your terrible decisions. In other words, a lot of unhappiness in our lives comes from our own disobedience, our own doing things our way. And how does, sometimes how does God fix that? He lets us lead ourselves to rock bottom before we go, it, it, it's not working. This is not working. You think about how this shows up sometimes. Think about kids who disobey parents and they get injured, right? I think of this often when I um, think of the wisdom that is in the Scriptures that says to young people, guard your heart from a love that's too young. And I think it's um, in one of the books of the wisdom, it says, be careful not to stir up love before it's time, right? Immature, adolescent love. If you throw yourself into it, I've seen this so often, especially in 15 years of youth ministry. You know what it leads to? It leads to a shattered, broken heart. And so sometimes um, it ends up with, you think of adults who break the law, And what do they face? Punishing consequences. Um, Christians who don't trust God for what they need, and they live in fear and stress. So when you remain in Jesus' love through obedience, His love is lasting. So what do we do now? What do we do now? Now, remember, obedience, therefore, is no slavish attitude, right? This is a loving response, a willing conformity to remain in Jesus' love. What could I focus on? Let me give you three things to focus on. The first thing, um, you can focus on a few commands. If obedience is an expression of love and that obedience leads to this lasting joy, then where do we start? Well, start with a few commands. Obeying, Obeying Jesus' commands is saying something profound. When you obey Jesus' commands, here's what you say. You say, I love you. You say, I want to be like you. You say, I trust that your way of living is better than my way of living. And ultimately, you say, my obedience willingly faces death of self-interest. Here's the main commands. We can kind of tune in here. There is a starting point with God, and here's the first one. It's repent. Now, this word has been hijacked, in my opinion. It's just my opinion. You don't have to believe this. But I feel like this word has been hijacked by, I don't even know how to describe this. I think well-meaning Christians who use this word as a way of kind of like beating people up or spiritually assaulting people, right? You start talking to people who don't have any sense about a faith in God or Jesus, and you start throwing this word repent. But even though that word, I think, has been hijacked, I think it is a word that's vital. You might say, where is God in this crazy world? Jesus promised He'd return. When is He returning? Why is He waiting so long? Well, the reason why Jesus is waiting so long is because He says, I am giving time. I'm not slow in keeping my promises. I'm giving people time to repent. 
I am letting them come to saving faith. What does that mean? An unrepentant heart um, is unhappy. An unrepentant heart would be joyless. Repentance is the daily transfer of your trust from your own effort, your own kingship over your own life. And it's a transfer from living my way to living God's way. It's a transfer in trust. Turn away from trusting in yourself and you turn toward trusting and treasuring Jesus. That is daily, and we could daily repent and say, I'm going to reroute my life in trusting Jesus. Secondly, love one another. Another command of Jesus. The greatest commandment, you can summarize the greatest commandment, love God and love other people. Unloving Christians. What does the Bible say about unloving Christians? Later on in the New Testament, there's some, there's some um, really insightful words written by John, Peter, and here's what they say. Unloving Christians don't know God. It's impossible because if you know God, you'll discover God is love, and that's one way in which you know somebody knows God. Unloving Christians are unhappily judgmental. They're unhappily self-righteous. Um, self-righteous and self-centered. They tend to be disgusted that other people aren't behaving like Christians while they themselves neglect Jesus' greatest commandment, the summary of all the law, love one another. Loving Christians are selflessly growing and flowing in the joy of Jesus' love for both His Father and for the people He's created in His own image. And we start there with love. And thirdly, go and make disciples. So here's the commands. We're looking for how do we upgrade our obedience? How do we express our love through obedience to remain in the love of Jesus so that this lasting joy is alive in our hearts? Repent, love one another, and then Jesus says, go and make disciples. Again, there's more commands. These are the highlights of His commands. Just before He leaves His disciples, He says, hey, the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit's going to empower you to make disciples. Joyless Christians tend to be hyper-focused on building their own kingdom. Joyless Christians um, tend, to f- tend to feed their gratification with material wealth, surface appearances, personal success and achievement, and these desires eat them alive as they fear failure as they uh, are frustrated with obstacles, the insecurity around other achievers. Disciple-makers live with joy as they invest themselves, as they remain in Jesus' life mission, as they continue to live in selflessness of Jesus and dependence on His Holy Spirit to reproduce themselves in others. In other words, they adopt the mission of Jesus in order to remain in Jesus. And they forfeit the mission of building their own kingdom. The Christmas Eve uh, gospel, the, the anticipation, the Christmas Eve gospel is that while the Christmas spirit, all the holiday stuff, all the memorable experiences that we're going to create together, all the warm feelings, they always fade away in our heart. But we should never let ourselves forget that the incarnate Jesus is real. His joy is lasting and sustaining. It's not, Jesus is not a children's fairy tale. He's alive and He's doing the work inside of our hearts to help us to thrive, to help our hearts come alive and stay alive, hope when we're grieving, and even rejoice when we're suffering. All this is what Jesus is doing actively by His Holy Spirit. Why? Because He's not a fairy tale in a kid's book. He's not just the main hero and focal point of the Christmas holiday and and feeling the Christmas spirit. He is alive and He is at work in hearts. And that heart experiences lasting joy 
and we can experience it together. Would you pray with me, church family?